Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Whether it's stress, hormonal imbalances, trauma, neglect, substance use, poor sleep, all of those risk factors increase the risk for all of the mental disorders across the board, all of them. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are talking about the metabolic underpinnings of mental illness. So we are talking about depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, OCD, even autism, we talk about it all. And my guest today is Dr. Christopher Palmer. He received his medical degree from Washington University School of Medicine and did his internship in and psychiatry residency at McLean Hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Harvard Medical School. He's currently the director of Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And as you might imagine, we start off talking about the role of mitochondria in mental health. And I know that there are many of you listening that are potentially on a uh, brain altering substance. Maybe you are on a medication for depression and or anxiety and or uh, an eating disorder, bipolar disorder, etc. cetera. Um, but in this conversation, we do talk about the idea that the monoamine hypothesis, meaning that there is a chemical imbalance in the brain has largely been uh, disproven. And more, uh, we'll say, recent research really points to this idea as mental illness as a metabolic disorder. So we start off with the mitochondria. We start off on discussing what the mitochondria do. So we talk about calcium regulation, production of neurotransmitters, production, production of hormones. Ladies that are listening, estrogen, we talk about... Um, testosterone and cortisol and insulin and thyroid. Uh, we talk about its regulation in the immune system and stress response. And then we talk about mental illnesses as either an overactive uh, 
brain uh, function. So for example, anxiety might be an example of hyper excitability of the amygdala, which is one of the regions in the brain implicated in the fear response. Uh, we talk about underactive brain functions. Um, we talk about examples like memory impairment and to in its extreme Alzheimer's disease. And then absence of specific brain functions. Uh, again, Alzheimer's disease we discussed as well. We spend a lot of time talking about major depression and anxiety because these are some of the big ones that uh, he sees in clinical practice and I would argue worldwide uh, many physicians are dealing with. And then we talk about some of the contributing factors to mental illness. So of course, metabolism and mitochondrial health, but some of the things that we see that implicate that impact directly metabolism and mitochondrial health, things like inflammation, hormones, sleep, heartbreak, purpose in life, past traumas, loneliness, all of these, how they are connected to the metabolism uh, in our brains and the mitochondrial function. We go through each of the hormones. So we talk about estrogen and insulin and cortisol and thyroid, and then we get into some actionable items. So what are some things that you can do to take your, you know, the, the trajectory of your life or someone that you really love uh, into their own hands or into your own hands. So we talk about the ketogenic diet as a proxy for improving insulin resistance, for improving uh, neurotransmitter um, production like glutamate and GABA, um, changes in the gut microbiome. We talk about autophagy and mitophagy, mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, and then we talk about other sort of low barriers to entry. So things like sleep regulation and sunlight, and, and all of the things. And then we also, little heartbreakers, a little, I'll give you a little Easter egg here. We talk about why marijuana is not the answer. Um, so you'll have to listen. That's kind of towards the end of our conversation, but I'll, I'll just give you that little Easter egg for you to listen to the end and, and hear his explanation on it. Overall, I think this is, if you are someone who is dealing with a mental illness, I promise you, you're not alone. This is the biggest problem that I think society as a whole faces. And the answer doesn't necessarily live in a pill. So so without further delay, I hope that you will enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Palmer, and I hope that you will share this conversation with somebody that you love and share it far and wide. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. 
don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Chris Palmer, I am just thrilled to welcome you to The Better Show. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I had the pleasure of receiving an advanced copy of your book, Brain Energy. Um, and I think we are going to have a great discussion today. Um, one of the through lines that I learned um, from the book is that mental disorders, even with uh, you know diagnoses like depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, bipolar, autism, all of these seemingly unrelated, let's say, diagnoses seem to have a through line of metabolic dysfunction. And I thought we might start right there, right at the, right at the crux of it all. Um, can you discuss with us what are some of the unifying qualities between you know, a, a cluster of, you know, I just named off, I don't know, five or six uh, labels that seemingly are very heterogeneous. You know, they're very different in their presentation. How have you, uh, what are some of the unifying qualities, let's say, between some of these mental illnesses? It, um, it's a really important question. And of the diagnoses that you listed, I kind of want to take one of them out because it deserves its own category, and that's the diagnosis of autism. And the reason it deserves its own category is because autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. And so for some people, it appears that it probably, that neurodevelopmental um, difference uh, probably takes place either in utero or it takes place early in life, in the first several years of life. Something happens but we have a tremendous amount of evidence to suggest that that something happening is metabolic in nature. So metabolic dysfunction can cause that neurodevelopmental problem, but some of those changes can become permanent. And people are, um, you know, autistic, have a difference in their in the way they relate to the world and their social skills, kind of permanently. And some of those appear to be irreversible. And so I want to kind of take them and put them in their own bucket. And we can come back to that and discuss that specific diagnosis later. But the other diagnoses, this is one of the kind of, this is just one of the many radical things about this theory 
and what I include in the book. And that is that even though we have all these different diagnostic labels like schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, anorexia, nervosa, and alcoholism, on the surface, they're all different disorders. They have very different symptoms. They impact people's lives in very different ways, and they have very different treatments. And so on the surface, it makes sense. And that's why the American Psychiatric Association has DSM-5 and says these are all different disorders. But in fact, if you look at real people suffering from any of these disorders, it turns out the, the majority of people who get treatment in the mental health system today have more than one diagnosis. So for instance, a lot of people with anorexia also have depression or anxiety or OCD or a substance use disorder in addition to their anorexia. A lot of people with substance use disorders also have bipolar disorder or depression or anxiety or OCD. A lot of people with OCD also have substance use disorders and anxiety and depression. And you, you're kind of getting the theme that when you look at real people with any of these disorders, the majority of people who are getting treatment on average at one uh, in one study, they had three and a half different diagnoses on average. More importantly, when we look at the risk factors of what causes all of these, the risk factors overlap significantly, whether it's stress, hormonal imbalances, trauma, neglect, um, you know, uh, substance use, poor sleep, all of those risk factors increase the risk for all of the mental disorders across the board, all of them. And, and the, the overarching theme, if you try to put it all together, you know, right now the mental health field says nobody can do it. It's too complex. It's just so complicated. The brain is so complicated and all of these risk factors seem so different from each other. Nobody can make sense of it. But in fact, if you do a deep dive into the science, and in particular, a lot of cutting edge science on metabolism and mitochondria that has only emerged in the last 10 years or so. So this is brand new, cutting edge. Most people don't get it. Most people don't know it. But if you do a deep dive into that science, that actually helps us and allows us to connect all of the dots of all of the mental disorders and the conclusion is what you outlined. Mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain. So let's let's um, double click a little bit on mitochondrial health and what they do. I know a lot of people listening are going to say, oh, yeah, I remember the mitochondria. Those are the battery packs of the cell. That's the Krebs cycle that, you know, and then maybe we relive some trauma from high school bio with them together. But maybe we can do a little bit of a deeper dive because one of the things I really appreciated about your book was that there was a stepwise and very clear um, explanation around some of the alternate 
or I'll say additional, maybe is a better word, function, functions of the mitochondria. And I'd love specifically if you can touch on calcium regulation, and then we can talk about neurotransmitters and hormones. But the calcium piece is very, uh, I mean, I think very, very important in terms, especially in the context of mental health and brain function. So talk to us a little bit about mitochondrial regulation of, of calcium. Um, and then we can, we can kind of, you know, parse that into a hormone and neurotransmitter conversation as well. Absolutely. So as you suggest, calcium regulation is a really important function of mitochondria. More importantly, calcium regulation is a really important part of cell function. So when calcium levels are high, cells are kind of turned on, whether it's a neuron in your brain um, when calcium levels are high, then neurons are actually active and they're firing, they're releasing hormones or neurotransmitters or whatever it is they do as a cell. But muscle cells, same deal. When If you've got a muscle cell and the calcium levels are high, it means that muscle is actively contracting, it's working, it's, it's putting in the work. When cells get turned off, by these calcium levels coming down. So when the calcium levels come down, that kind of turns the system off and the cell goes into a resting state. So again, that could be a neuron or a muscle cell. Um, and you know, for a long time, it really wasn't understood what exactly is kind of taking the lead role in controlling these calcium levels. Researchers have known for decades that calcium levels were really an important signal, this on-off signal, but they didn't really fully understand what exactly is controlling the regulation of calcium. And it turns out, this is one of those cutting edge pieces of research that we've discovered over the last 10, 20 years, that it turns out that mitochondria are instrumental in this. So mitochondria actually play a role in uh, I'll just stop there and we can go into a lot more science. I don't want to get too nerdy, but um, mitochondria play a direct role in regulating calcium levels. So they can either provide energy to actively pump it out of cells. Sometimes they pump it into other parts of the cell, like the endoplasmic reticulum, for instance, which serves as like a storage site for this calcium to help turn the cell off. And sometimes the mitochondria actually take the calcium inside themselves. They serve as a little reservoir for calcium. And again, the, the big overarching picture is mitochondria are instrumental in affecting calcium levels, and that plays a direct role in whether cells get turned on or get turned off. Yeah. And well, when we, when we talk about some of the, I'd like to talk about some of the specific um, mental illnesses. One of the things that you highlight, let's say in bipolar uh, disorder is, you know, when we talk about this hyperexcitability, again, if anyone's ever taken like neuroanatomy 101, or, you know, we know that the depolarization of a neuron happens when calcium kind of rushes into the cell. And then we, we, that's the, uh, you know, that's where, we, and then we have this refractory period afterwards. And part, and most of that is controlled at least par partially by sodium uh, calcium seem is, is in there as well. Um, how do we, how can we, uh, can you explain rather, um, so we, we've talked about calcium regulation. Um, how do mitochondria help with hormone production, which is going to be of 
extreme interest to the ladies that are listening because we all talk about hormones on the show a lot, but also uh, neurotransmitters as well, uh, which you know, when, whenever we talk, whenever I talk about neurotransmitters, I will often uh, explain them like hormones, but for the brain, right? I mean, I know that there's, uh, that's maybe an overly simplistic way of uh, explaining it, but I think that people, like whenever I'm asked, like, what's the difference between those two? I think both hormones and neurotransmitters have profound impacts on our perception, on cognition, on behavior. So how do mitochondria, we'll start with neurotransmitters and we can move to hormones, but how do they, uh, you know, what is the direct role that they play, let's say, in either production of and then which neurotransmitters are we talking about? Um, it's a really important question. And again, this so the field of mental health has known like this is what the biological researchers have been pursuing is like what causes neurotransmitter imbalances, what causes hormonal imbalances. We know that cortisol is related um, and this is, again, one of these cutting edge areas of research that um, that we have only recently discovered how instrumental mitochondria are in both of these. So mitochondria actually play a very direct and powerful role in the production and the regulation and release of neurotransmitters. So the first part in terms of producing neurotransmitters, you know, mitochondria being the powerhouses that they are, take things like glucose or fats and they start breaking them down and that creates energy. But as they break them down, they break them down into these other molecules like pyruvate and other even smaller and smaller molecules. Some of these smaller molecules are actually instrumental in the production of neurotransmitters. And these include key neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine and glutamate, which is actually, you know, glutamate is kind of the neurotransmitter most people haven't heard of, but it's actually the most prominent neurotransmitter in the human brain. Um, so it's, it's like the big one but most people don't even know what it is. So, uh, um, uh, but so mitochondria play a direct role in providing building blocks. That's kind of an easy way to say it is, so to make my, so to make a neurotransmitter, you need two things. You need building blocks and you need energy. Um, and mitochondria are there to provide both of those things. So first they make some of the building blocks that get used to put these neurotransmitters together but then they provide the energy to, to regulate the whole process. And neurotransmitters end up getting bundled up into these little bubbles that we call vesicles. And then when, when, the, when the neuron gets turned on, um, it starts releasing these neurotransmitters. And mitochondria actually play an active role in that. Um, and if you prevent mitochondria from like being at a synapse, for instance, the neurotransmitters actually don't get released. Even if the researchers squirt lots of ATP in, which is kind of the energy source, energy alone isn't enough. Mitochondria are somehow regulating the release of neurotransmitters. And the reason this is so important is because there's this thing called mitochondrial dysfunction, which in, in a nutshell means either a cell doesn't have enough mitochondria 
or the mitochondria in the cell are somehow defective or dysfunctional. They're not working right. And when a cell doesn't have enough mitochondria working in that cell, um, neurotransmitters can become imbalanced and dysregulated. And that directly can result in symptoms that we call mental illness symptoms. It could be, and they, they can be widespread. They can be things like having a panic attack for no reason or having anxiety for no reason. It could also be feeling depressed for no reason, all the way to having hallucinations or delusions that when these neurotransmitter functions become imbalanced, um, all of those types of things can result. This in, in some ways, not always, but in some ways, this flies in the face of some of the traditionally held theories around mental illness. So in the book, you, you kind of detail a lot of them. The biopsychosocial model comes to mind, the monoamine um, hypothesis, let's say, of depression, where, you know, the through line for why someone might be depressed is that they have some sort of chemical imbalance. So they're either, you know, presynaptic or postsynaptic or, you know, intersynaptic. There's not enough serotonin, let's say, uptake in the postsynaptic neuron, which is why the development of things like SSRIs and SNRIs are in, you know, in the, uh, we'll say, uh, are in abundance in the way that they are, because this is sort of like the consensus in terms of why depression exists. But when we look at it from a slightly different lens, where we say maybe it's the mitochondrial efficiency and potentially dysfunction um, of, let's say, the 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 neuron or you know what where, wherever you know in whatever area of the brain, I think we can start to. Um, all of these different proposals for why mental illness happen uh, start to make a lot more sense. And which is why, you know, we started off the conversation saying, yeah, there's a lot of heterogeneity between something like depression and bipolar and OCD and anxiety. Like they all present uh, very differently. But when we kind of come down to it, it's either an overactivity, maybe through via calcium regulation, via neurotransmitter, like the inhibitory neurotransmitters or the excitatory neurotransmitters that, that we, that we talked about. Um, or there's an absence, like an underact, there's an underactivity of the brain or an absence of specific functions in the brain. So I, I wanted, uh, maybe your comments on, um, maybe your thoughts on how the, if at all, the biopsychosocial model, things like the monoamine hypothesis, which is still very largely accepted as the root cause for depression, how that bumps up against what we're talking about now, which is there's a meta, there's the mitochondria, which you might argue is the heart of, or the soul of metabolism. When that goes awry, this is where we can see all these different disorders sort of play out in a different way. Yeah, excellent point. So the the brain energy theory actually doesn't replace the biopsychosocial model. And it doesn't really argue against a lot of those different assertions, although the chemical imbalance theory has actually kind of already been disproven. And some some of your listeners may be aware of a study. Well, we've that- had other psychiatrists on that have <laughs> talked about this. So they're, they're aware of it. But I think in practice, you know, if you go yeah. to your medical doctor and you say, listen, I've been depressed. Here's my two weeks. I've had a major depressive episode, can't sleep, all the things that, let's say, would qualify you for an MDD. 
you're probably going to walk out with some Zoloft or Wellbutrin or Prozac. Like you're probably going to walk out with something like that. So in, in in the clinical literature doesn't necessarily support that, but the clinical, the practice is still very much at play. Absolutely. And if you ask your doctor, why are you giving me a pill? Your doctor is very likely to still say, well, because you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain. Correct. And uh, it's a serotonin imbalance. We know that. And that's why I'm giving you this medication that's going to increase your serotonin levels. And that's how it all works out. So that has, again, that's largely been disproven. And if you ask just basic common sense questions about that theory, that theory easily falls apart. Um, within seconds. And so one of the obvious um, ways to disprove that theory is that we know that medications like Zoloft and Prozac actually increase serotonin levels in the brain within hours, Right. within hours of taking them. Mm -hmm. And yet anybody who's taken them and benefited from them knows that it doesn't work right away. It doesn't work in in an hour. You, You have to take it for several weeks before it really starts to work. And so right away, if at all, if at all, if it Mm -hmm. even works. And unfortunately, if you look at longitudinal studies of all comers, all the people in the world who are taking SSRIs for depression, only about maybe 10% get a full and complete and lasting remission of their depressive symptoms. Only about 10%. With the only intervention being the medication. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so looking to a pill to fix your chemical imbalance is not a very effective solution. And trust me, I know that some people might hear that as, you know, Chris Palmer's being a quack or Chris Palmer's, you know, uh, telling me it's all in my head, dissing, dissing <laughs> yeah. the field. Well, I'm, yeah. de- I'm definitely not telling anyone it's all in their head because mm-hmm. I believe mental disorders are real disorders mm-hmm. and I see them torment people and really cause suffering and impairment. So I am not at all questioning the validity of mental disorders like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and others. They are real as far as I'm concerned. They ruin people's lives sometimes, Mm -hmm. and we need more effective treatments. But our current treatments fail to work for far too many people. And if you don't, if you question that, or if you think I'm being too pessimistic, the, the hard fact is that mental disorders are now the leading cause of disability in the United States and throughout the world, the entire planet, more people are disabled from mental disorders. And guess what the diagnosis is? The number one diagnosis that disables more people on the planet is depression, plain old depression. And we have all these SSRIs and other antidepressants, and we've got talk therapy, and we've got shock therapy, and we've got all of these therapies, and they're not working for so many people And we need a better way to understand these disorders and better ways to treat these disorders. I could not agree more. And I think when we think about, I mean, that's a shocking, I actually thought that it was higher. I thought it was about 30% 
uh, efficacy when you're taking, let's say, a, an antidepressant, which I was going to say is about the same as the placebo effect, right? Or it's about the same as exercise, because we know that individuals that have depression that start exercising or some type of light movement, uh, we, we see uh, an amelioration, at least, in some the severity, the frequency, and the duration of their symptoms. But you might also bring that back to why exercise is so such a powerful antidepressant, let's say, you know, f- focusing on, you know, depression for a moment, is that we are activating, well, we are helping, you know, improve the metabolic efficiency and conditioning of a person, which is relayed through the musculoskeletal system. And then of course, it's going to the motor cortex, the efferents and the afferents that are coming down from the brain. So your brain is getting healthier. And of course, we can get into BDNF and all that other stuff, but you know, maybe not for the purpose of this conversation. But but I think that the exercise piece, why that's so efficacious, in part, is because we are improving the metabolic condition of the individual as well. Absolutely. So the so I, and I just want to clarify that difference because you said thirty percent remission, and in fact, you're right. In short term clinical trials, so twelve week clinical trials, about thirty percent do go into remission. When I said ten percent, I'm talking about over the long run. I'm talking about a one study in particular that followed hundreds of patients, all treated at academic medical centers over twelve years, and only ten percent. Wow. Remain, remained symptom-free, 90%. So even if you've got an antidepressant that looks like it puts your depression into remission within 12 weeks, even if you keep taking that medicine, within a couple of years, there is a high likelihood your depression is going to come back. And then they're going to say your antidepressant pooped out. Or they're going to come, you know, they're going to say, oh, you must have been stressed or maybe you were drinking too much or maybe you stopped your pills and you weren't taking them like you were told to take them. We come up with all sorts of reasons, but which usually fall on the patient. Oh, of (laughs) course. All the things you just said is like, well, you were drinking. Oh, you must have habituated to it. Oh, you probably weren't doing everything I told you to do. And then the patient's like, well, I suck. I must be this must be the life that I'm meant to live. Yes, which is a great message. It's so compassionate and sympathetic for the healthcare system to deliver that message to somebody with depression. Right. Um, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, I was going to say insert sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Insert, absolutely insert sarcasm. It is the most cruel thing that we could be doing to people who Mm -hmm. are suffering and who already have trouble with confidence and self-esteem and everything else. The great news that you were, were getting to The great news about this theory is that we know, we already know lots of ways for people to improve their metabolism and improving metabolism can improve brain function and reduce or eliminate symptoms of mental illness. And these can include interventions, like you said, like exercise, diet, and other strategies. And sometimes these simple interventions can make a huge difference for people with mental disorders. And I definitely want to talk about some actionable items. So I'm just going to put the, I'm put, going to put exercise and nutrition and maybe, you know, heat and cold. I want to put those on the shelf just for a moment Great. because I do, one of the things I loved about your book, I was saying this to you in the pre-chat, is how you talked about overactive brain function, underactive brain function, and then absent 
you know, there's areas of the brain or, you know, functionality that's absent. And I wondered if we might just briefly give an example of each. I mean, we talked about, um, uh, overactivity, let's say we talked in terms of calcium uh, regulation um, in, in making the neurons, let's say hyper excitable uh, or the mitochondria or the cell uh, rather uh, hyper excitable. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about um, what might, what might be some uh, uh, symptomatic displays, behavioral displays of an overactive brain? What would be some clinical uh, disorders and or um, uh, behaviors that we might see? So, um, so we're so we're now talking about mental disorders and, um, and it's, if I can just insert a quick comment, it's important. So in the book, I really go out of my way to distinguish mental disorders from stress reactions or, you know, reactions to adversity. Um, so we're talking about mental disorders and in the end, mental disorders are exactly what you just outlined overactive, underactive, or absent brain functions. And so an overactive brain function, for instance, like we all have anxiety pathways in our brain and anxiety is a normal part of being a human being. If it occurs at the right time under the right circumstances to the right stimulus. Yeah. But if you have an overactive anxiety brain region, um, if that brain region is metabolically compromised and hyper excitable due to mito this mitochondria and due to the calcium and the overactivity of some of the neurotransmitters, you're going to have anxiety symptoms or panic symptoms for no good reason, or the symptoms aren't going to stop when they should stop. So sometimes people can get triggered. So you can have anxiety for a clear reason. Somebody yelled at you, you know, and scolded you for something. And that would make anyone anxious. But, you know, most people who are healthy and have normal brain function will usually get over it in a reasonable amount of time, whatever that is. I guess it depends on the circumstance of how quickly somebody should get over that. But people with anxiety disorders once you set off that anxiety system in them, it can almost, it's almost kind of like I almost envision it, you know, as just a hyper excitable system, almost kind of like setting off like a seizure or a muscle spasm or something that it's just, it's doing something that it shouldn't be doing. And now it won't stop. Like, like with a muscle spasm, which is a hyper excitable muscle cell, sometimes once it gets going, it doesn't want to stop and right. it's, it's hard to get it to stop you. Yep. You know, you have to massage it. You might be trying magnesium or muscle relaxants or all heat or all sorts of things. Like once it starts getting hyper excitable, it can take on a life of its own. And I believe that we actually have an abundance of evidence already to suggest that exact same thing happens in the brain. And that, that exact same thing is happening in brain cells and brain networks. And when, when your anxiety pathway is hyper excitable, what it means is that somebody who's just in a non-threatening environment, trying to sitting on their sofa, watching TV or something, their, ha their system is in overdrive panicking. Um, but this model allows us to understand all symptoms of mental disorders. 
So it could be as extreme as having hallucinations or delusions, which are also normal brain functions, which is surprising to a lot of people. But if you don't believe me, when people sleep, they are hallucinating. They are hearing things or seeing things that aren't there. And we all know it. Like when, when we're in the middle of that dream, it seems real. It seems like it's really happening. And most people aren't capable of lucid dreaming. So most of us don't know that it's a dream. It just, it feels real. It feels. And if that same process happens to somebody during the day out of the blue for no good reason, we would end up diagnosing that person as having schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or some other disorder. And we would say that they are hallucinating or delusional and that that's not normal. But in fact, it is a normal part of all of our brains. It's hardwired into all of our brains because we all have those experiences. But in people with mental illness, those experiences are hyper excitable. They are happening at the wrong time or in the wrong way. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And the inhibition that would normally sort of bring it back down to normal is also probably lacking as well. Absolutely. And we, we actually have a, real, a lot of evidence that those inhibitory neurons, they're for any of you nerds uh, like me. There's lots of nerds that are listening. So that's where we're <laughs> going here. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> called cortical interneurons and they secrete a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is inhibitory. Um, but we have a lot of evidence that those neurons appear to be malfunctioning due to metabolic problems, that they appear to be malfunctioning in people with a variety of diagnoses, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but also autism and also Alzheimer's disease. So all of a sudden, like, wait, we've got the exact same abnormality showing up in all of these different disorders. And lo and behold, all of those different disorders involve hyper excitable symptoms. So the brain starts doing things that it really shouldn't be doing. So when we have these uh, overactive, we'll say, uh, uh, pathways that are being activated, the neurons are basically now um, exaggerated, like the the firing pattern, let's say, is exaggerated at inappropriate times. And when you were when you were talking about anxiety, I. I was recalling uh, a patient I worked with several years ago. I remember her, uh, she was in her mid forties and she was just at the mall. She was just 
doing whatever she was doing, shopping, doing whatever she was doing. And she thought she was having a heart attack. And what, you know, she went to the hospital and they ended up saying to her, oh, it's just a panic attack. And for those of you that are listening on audio, I'm using air quotes, just a panic attack. And then, so she started and she was so embarrassed by this. So she, I remember her saying to me, like, I'm so embarrassed. Like, I can't believe that I had a panic attack. I was just at the mall, like buying shoes for whatever she was doing. And so she started avoiding the mall because she thought that the mall was the stimulus. Like she was like, it must be something about the mall. And then I I, I remember uh, she had, she had another panic attack somewhere else. And then she was like, oh my God. And then, so it eventually came to this point where she didn't want to leave her house because she was so mortified and petrified of having a panic attack. And I, I wonder a, if you've seen something like that, I I mean, I'm I'm assuming that you've seen tons of every, everything and everything in between, but is there a relationship? And I ask this because this woman in particular was in perimenopause. Like she was having issues with her heart. Like the, the original reason why we started working together was to help her balance out her hormones. And of course, one of the hallmarks of perimenopause for some women, unfortunately, is this like almost like cataclysmic, you know, very oscillations in estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. And I wondered if you have seen that and wanted to comment on that. If, if that's something that you see a lot with females in perimenopause, is that an extreme example? Like, What are your thoughts on that? Well, so as a psychiatrist, I have seen countless Everything. patients. Yes. I've seen countless yeah. patients exactly like that. And I've seen patients who actually were unable to leave their home. They were unable to go out in public without somebody taking them. Mm -hmm. I've had patients who needed escorts every time they came to see me um, because they were terrified of having a panic attack. And um, in terms of the relationship to female hormones, so we have long known that you know, the world is a really unfair place for women. Um, it uh, Hormones, women's hormones are so much more complex than men's hormones. And this likely is one of the reasons that, you know, if you look at really young children, boys and girls, they have about the same rates of depression and anxiety disorders But as soon as puberty hits, bam, the rates of mental illness in girls and women double. So women on average have twice the rates of depression and anxiety disorders as men. When they, and a lot of people know that around the time of menstruation, Some women can experience even more symptoms or the symptoms can get worse. For some women, they're actually perfectly fine the rest of the month, but around the time of menstruation, the symptoms can get a lot worse. And we know that that is likely related, at least in part to hormones, but I think there's another part of the story there um, that I I can come back to. But But then as as menopause, as perimenopause starts and menopause kicks in, as you said, levels of testosterone, progesterone, estrogen are declining. And we know that those, we've actually got an abundance of studies um, in both animals and humans, knowing that 
brain metabolism is decreasing profoundly in women around the time of perimenopause and menopause. And what that means is that your brain is not getting quite enough energy. That your brain cells, actually, if they look at the levels of ATP in your brain cells, it's declining when you're going through menopause. And that is because estrogen is a really powerful regulator of metabolism throughout the body. Obviously, it plays a really critical role in the function of ovaries and reproductive functions, but it also is playing a really powerful and critical role in brain function as well. And so um, we know that, like, for instance, women who've had depression at some point before menopause, when they go through menopause, they're five times more likely to have another episode of depression um, when they're going through menopause. And we think it's probably related to these plummeting levels of estrogen. Yeah. And I would even imagine just blood flow as well, because we know that there's like a, you know, estrogen is a potent vasodilator. And this is, you know, in part why some women experience a lot of hot flashes, like sudden, yeah. uh, we'll say vasodilation and cardiovascular uh, health as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about underactive uh, brain function. So we talked a little bit about like the hallucinations in, in its extreme um, uh, delusions, uh, obsession, uh, you know, OCD, I would also assume is like overactivity, uh, fear and anxiety overactivity. What are, what are some of the uh, uh, salient uh, clinical harm hallmarks or, you know, uh, uh, disorders with an underactive brain. So it can be globally, or we can also talk about specific uh, nuclei or networks in the brain. And again, so great question. And the easiest way to think about it is think about what most quote unquote normal people would do in certain circumstances or what they're capable of doing. And underactive brain functions mean that somebody's not doing those things or they're not capable of doing those things. So an extreme example is that we have networks in our brains that help us remember things, remember what someone told us or remember a, a phone number or remember a fact about a friend or remember where we're driving to. Um, and if those networks are underactive, they're not functioning properly, that means that somebody may develop memory impairment. Now, the extreme version of that is something like Alzheimer's disease, where some of those cells might actually die eventually, and so they're not even there to perform the function anymore. And so that would actually be an absent brain function. But prior to that, they, the cells are still there, but they're just not functioning properly. And we know that a big part of that is related to those cells don't have enough ATP. They're not using glucose in the same way to produce ATP. And so those cells are underactive. There are other cases of underactive cells. Um, so motivation or concentration is an obvious one. So most of us should be able to motivate ourselves to go to work or go to school or do whatever we're supposed to do in our lives. And if those brain regions are underactive, it means that somebody will have impairment in their ability to 
motivate themselves or even their ability to concentrate. Um, and we apply different diagnostic labels to that, to those symptoms like motivation, concentration, they're, they're, they're different things. But if you think about it, like impaired concentration, somebody who can't focus and concentrate, we actually apply a lot of different diagnostic labels to that one symptom. That person might get diagnosed with ADHD. That person could also possibly be diagnosed with depression. But in fact, people with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and OCD and eating disorders and substance use disorders all, all usually also have impairment in the ability to concentrate and focus. So, so some of the symptoms of underactive brain regions are kind of global across diagnostic categories. And then I can at least bring up the, neuro, the neurodevelopmental disorder that we talked about, autism, or sure. auti you know, autism spectrum. So that is, you know, either underactive or in some cases, I think, absent brain systems that help people respond to social cues. You know, that is one of the hallmark definitions of being autistic or having autism spectrum disorder. And, you know, is the, a difference in the way these people perceive social cues and respond to social cues. And, um, and so if somebody's having impairment in that, it means that those brain cells or those brain networks that normally help people do those things are somehow either underactive or absent. And so those people have trouble kind of being neurotypical, responding in the, the, the ways that most people consider normal. Yeah. And you were in the book, you were talking about, um, um, I think there was a study that was done with rats that were, I think, anxious or depressed or both. And what they did was they looked at the uh, mitochondria and what you what was found on uh, examining um, was that they had a total loss of volume. So there was like less mitochondria per cell. And there was differences in the kind of back to this mitochondrial uh, theory, there was differences in the way that their mitochondria was using the substrate to produce uh, ATP. So, you know, one of the, um, uh, obviously the more, uh, we'll say oxygen, uh, rich or the, you know, ATP rich way of producing ATP is through oxidative phosphorylation or oxphos if you're a cool cat. Uh, but it seemed like there was, you, you, you sort of talk about this in the book that there was a different way of utilizing oxygen. So, you know, kind of like underscoring and like sort of double underlining what you're saying, like some of these things are differences in the way that the brains are functioning. And if we can begin to restore um, some of the metabolic, like the efficiency of the mitochondria, um, then we can start to see at least some some improvements in terms of, of the severity and the duration, let's say, and the frequency um, of, uh, of, our, of our patients' um, symptoms. Absolutely. I think, you know, so for some of you listening, if, if you are intimidated by any of this science or if you're thinking this science, it sounds too nerdy or isn't relevant um, or doesn't really matter. I want to bring it home because at the end of the day, the solutions 
are actually really practical and actionable. And it goes along with exactly what you said. If we can understand that the symptoms of mental illness are coming from parts of the brain that aren't getting enough energy, they are metabolically compromised, we can actually come up with strategies to improve that the, the metabolism and increase the amount of energy in those cells allowing, and we can do that through a variety of ways. And some psychiatric medications actually do that directly. So again, this theory doesn't replace the field of mental health. It doesn't say we've got to throw everything out and start fresh. But instead, this theory actually helps us better understand why do some of the treatments work for some people? How exactly are they working? But more importantly, it gives us new strategies and new tools, ones that I think can result in long-term healing. And, and the bottom line is exactly what you said. If we can restore metabolism in metabolically compromised brain cells, it means that is a path to putting mental illness into full and lasting remission. Some might want to call it a cure. I don't think I'm bold enough yet to say I'm curing mental illness, but I think it's pretty darn close. And and some might argue with me and saying, you know, Chris Palmer, go ahead, say the word cure, because that is what we're doing. And I'm not necessarily going to argue really hard back, but, um, but I want to be responsible. And I, instead, I'll use the word remission, that we can put symptoms into remission. We can help people heal and we can help people live good, full, productive, suffering-free lives. I love that because it's a much more empowering message to say you have the capacity to turn this ship around versus the reason why you have this problem is a Prozac deficiency. Like you weren't born with enough Prozac in your blood and the, or your brain. And that's why you have this problem. So I, I really do love uh, what you're saying. And I think that it, again, I think that it's such a, a beautiful message to uh, I mean, one of the things I love to talk about is informed consent, right? I think that this is you're educating the patient so that they can make a decision that is good for them. And maybe in the short term, medications are going to help them get over a very emotionally salient or like something that's very difficult. But then when we can take more of a long-term lens and say, let's actually restore mitochondrial function uh, through some of the things I'd love to kind of move into now. I know you've talked, you've you've spoken at the Metabolic Health Summit and and others on uh, dietary interventions that may help to restore at least um, insulin sensitivity and uh, metabolic function. I think that this is a much better and I would argue a more responsible uh, message that we are telling our population that they are responsible. I think there's a a certain uh, piece of like personal accountability that I think is very empowering. It can be scary at first because a lot of times we want to delegate. We want to like, we want to have the label become part of our personality and my fibromyalgia and my depression and my, you know, and we sort of integrate this into the psyche. But I think once you stop delegating your results to a pill or to a, a psychiatrist or, or a healthcare system, and you say, actually, this is I'm going to take part in this healing process as well. I think that that actually creates a strong, like creates stronger citizens and you know healthier, more robust everything like economy and productive, like all the things. Like it bleeds into everything. Um, 
Okay. So let's, uh, with my little preamble, my little preamble there, uh, you've, as, as I mentioned, you've spoken metabolic health summit on the ketogenic diet and its impact on brain function. Obviously your book is not a book on the ketogenic diet, but, um, I do think that it's very interesting that a psychiatrist has used this as a, as a proc has used this in their, uh, uh, practice for clinical outcomes. So first, you know, kind of question before we tuck in is how does the ketogenic diet help with mental health issues? Um, so although most people know the keto diet is a fad diet or a weight loss diet, a lot of people think it's just the recent, you know, fad diet, it's trendy. Other people are terrible, you know, they hate it. They, they're angry at it. Uh, they, they think it's a dangerous diet. It's, you know, it's a selfish diet to the planet. If you're a vegan, you may not like it for that reason. Um, but in fact, the ketogenic diet is actually a really old diet. It was developed 100 years ago by a physician for one and only one reason. And he did not develop it as a weight loss intervention. He didn't develop it as a nutrient-dense diet that just confers health to everyone. He actually developed it to stop seizures. And so, so that story kind of goes, you know, we've long known that fasting can stop seizures. So even Hippocrates knew about that. Um, at, but, you know, nobody knew exactly how or why. And the problem with fasting is that you know, fasting kind of results in starvation eventually, and then people die. And so that's not a very good treatment. It's <laughs> not a long-term so, plan. Yeah. <laughs> not a long, not a good long-term plan. Yeah. And so it was actually Russell Wilder who invented the ketogenic diet. Cause he wanted to see, can we mimic the fasting state, but allow people to still grow and thrive and remain healthy and not starve to death. And lo and behold, it worked. And the reason I tell that story is because we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry every day. We use them in tens of millions of people. So for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with this, medications like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, Neurontin, Clonopin, Valium, Xanax, all of the medications I just listed are seizure medicines, actually. And we've adopted them in the mental health community. So most people who've heard those names usually know them because they or a loved one took one of those medicines for their mental health problem. But in fact, those are seizure treatments. And so the fact that, you know, the ketogenic diet is now an evidence-based treatment. We have decades of neuroscience research telling us how and why this stops seizures. This diet changes neurotransmitters, it changes hormones, it decreases brain inflammation, changes the gut microbiome, improves insulin resistance, um, and specific to my book, the two most powerful things I think the ketogenic diet does is it, it repairs mitochondria in this process called mitophagy, and it also stimulates the production of more mitochondria, brand new ones called mitochondrial biogenesis. And so when people do the ketogenic diet, they, their cells end up with more mitochondria and healthier mitochondria. And I believe that those two things in particular 
are extraordinarily powerful in helping malfunctioning cells function normally again. Yeah, I can you, keep I can yeah. keep going on, but I'll give you a chance. To- yeah, no, I, I love that because you had mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, you know, one of the things we want to be uh, cognizant of as we age is that the brain's capacity to produce ATP goes down. And when we're thinking about um, optimizing, let's say, brain function, of course, the brain is always going to, you know, it's always going to run on some level of glucose. But if we are able now to also have an alternative substrate like ketone bodies, right? So fatty acids, you know, people have heard us talk about the ketogenic diet on the show before, but uh, free fatty acids are not able to be used uh, by the brain. It needs to be uh, uptake. Ketone bodies are the things that the neurons are able to uh, take up and use uh, as well as the support cells, um, in, in the brain as well. Um, so if we have a natural decline in ATP production, being able to provide an alternate substrate like ketone bodies, which I know we didn't talk about this, but I'd love you to expand on it. One of the things we know about the ketone bodies going through the Krebs cycle, going through this mitochondrial process of producing ATP, is we actually do produce less reactive oxygen species. There's less uh, sort of things that are inflammatory relative to when we look at uh, some of the offshoots of glucose metabolism going through the Krebs cycle. So that's also great as well, because we're now we're also attenuating brain inflammation, which I think, uh, you know, you mentioned improves, improves insulin resistance. Like as we're on a ketogenic diet, you're going to become more insulin sensitive. The brain also naturally, as the body does, as we age, becomes more insulin resistant. I've talked about this on the show in terms of the myocyte, in terms of muscles, we become more anabolically resistant to growth. So you really do have to work on things like resistance training, you know, in your thirties and your forties and your fifties to continue to even just to maintain what you had, you know, when you were, tw- you know, 20 and, and what have you. So would love for you to kind of expand. I know that I just threw a lot at, <laughs> I just threw a lot at you there, but would love for you to expand a little bit on ketone bodies as a substrate for the brain and why it's so good for the brain and why we want to be and maybe we don't want to, I've talked about um, not necessarily wanting to be in ketosis all the time, um, but having the capacity to sort of, you know, flux like in and out of it, uh, you know, as you see fit. What what are your thoughts on that? So I'll respond to that last um, comment that you made, which is, you know, some people ask me, so should everybody be on the keto diet and should they stay on it forever and ever? And will that stamp out all mental illness and all illness in the world? No. Um, everybody's different. So, and, and I really mean that, um, and I, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. No, you're absolutely, there's so much bio-individuality, like you can't, we're not a homogenous, like we're so, even you and I, you know, we have most of the same body parts, but we're very different, right? Everybody's different. And so everybody has different levels of health, different levels of insulin resistance, different Mm -hmm. gut microbiomes and Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so there are people who can dramatically and tremendously improve their health with a ketogenic diet. And when they stop the ketogenic diet, they can get dramatically worse. I'll take epilepsy. There are people with epilepsy who have been on the ketogenic diet for 40 plus years. And every time they stop the ketogenic diet, their seizures come back with a vengeance. Should that person stay on a ketogenic diet for life? I, as a physician, would say yes, Um, unless that person wants to become disabled and seizing all the time. 
it, it's a better life to just stay on the ketogenic diet and remain seizure free than to eat, you know, whatever it is you think you should be eating and have and have seizures and be disabled. So I think there are some people who may in fact need the ketogenic diet long-term, no cheat days, no stopping, because they do better, that their brain does better or other body parts are doing better on it. I agree with what you've said overall. I don't think everybody even needs a ketogenic diet. It's not like I think this is a treatment every human being should try. I really, in my heart of hearts, don't believe that. Even though I am a very strong and passionate advocate for the ketogenic diet, for mental illness as a treatment, I don't believe every human being on the planet needs the ketogenic diet or should try the ketogenic diet. Some people will do just fine by, you know, eating a healthier diet that is not necessarily ketogenic. And then there are people in between who might do really well to cycle through it or use it for a year or two and then try to transition off or use it intermittently, you know, a couple times a month or whatever. Um, the, so ketone bodies are really important because, as you said, they, they serve as this extra fuel source. The reason they're so important is so in a lot of cells in the body, in order for glucose, so glucose is the primary fuel source for most cells. And most cells in the body and this is very is not so clear cut in brain cells because a lot of brain cells Glucose can get in fairly easy, but sometimes that glucose can't get across the blood-brain barrier as easily or, or there can be other issues. But glucose, for the most part, needs insulin and insulin signaling in order to get into a cell and be used by mitochondria as a fuel source. And so when people have type 2 diabetes, which is kind of the extreme form of insulin resistance, what that means is that their cells actually aren't getting enough ATP from the production of glucose because they've got insulin resistance. If you give those cells ketone bodies instead, ketones don't need anything to get into a cell. Ketones can slip right in and fatty acids can too. They can slip right in. They can go right to the mitochondria. The mitochondria will suck them up and use them for energy and the mitochondria will come back to life and that cell will now have 100% power as opposed to only having 70% power. And that can make all the difference in the way that cell functions, but also in terms of that <laughs> cell's ability to heal itself or do repair work or maintenance work and other things. The brain cells, again, get a little more complicated if I'm gonna speak the whole truth because a lot of brain cells um, don't, they can get glucose inside them with or without insulin, but it turns out that insulin plays a powerful role in brain function and brain cells. And insulin in the brain almost seems more like a neurotransmitter than it does a hormone in some cases. But nonetheless, the, the bottom line fact is this, Many people with mental and neurological disorders, so this includes Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and most mental disorders, most of them, aren't getting enough ATP in their cells because they don't seem to be able to use glucose 
as effectively. But if we give those same cells ketone bodies, the, the ketones can increase the amount of energy those cells are able to produce. And again, that energy then does two things. It helps the cell function more normally right away, but much more importantly, in my mind, for long-term health, is it helps that cell repair itself, do maintenance work, and everything else, so that cell becomes more robust and resilient over time. I, I think that this is, you know, if I hear you correctly, I'll sort of paraphrase what you said, uh, and this is, a, a, I think we're very aligned here, is that an intervention like a nutritional intervention, like the ketogenic diet is a diet that you will follow, let's say when you are unwell metabolically, but it's not necessarily the diet that you'll follow forever. And of course, you've already identified an exception to that rule, you know, being someone with, who has uh, epilep you know, epilepsy and, and maybe requires that nutritional intervention over the long term. But for most of us, this is a therapeutic intervention to augment mitochondrial and metabolic function. And then once we have healed that, it appears Appears that uh, you can either cycle it, as you said, you can go in and out of it, or you can just sort of be paleo, low carb ish, um, and be perfectly fine. Because the the diet that you follow when you are unhealthy metabolically, in this case, is going to vary from the diet that you can follow when you are well, when you are healthy, when your cells are acting at, you know, when they're when they're optimized and they're they're operating at peak function. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And and then there are even other circumstances that absolutely change things. So I just talked to a woman last week who has been doing really well on a ketogenic diet, but she got pregnant and she recognized I need more. I need some carbohydrates now. I should not be pregnant and carb free or low carb. I, I need at least some carbs. She didn't go overboard and she's not eating pasta and bread every meal or anything, but she added back more healthy carbs. And, and I uh, completely support and agree with her decision. I think that's probably the right decision is yeah, that not all carbs are created equal. Like you have, there's a difference between a sweet potato and pasta. Absolutely. And, yeah. oh, well, and a donut. And, yeah, right, right. Yeah, even and, worse. Yeah, and, yeah. And, a, and a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Right. And, uh, you know, so some carbs are it, it, it certainly fine and healthy in metabolically healthy people because those people can consume those, those foods and remain metabolically healthy or even improve their metabolic health. Like carbs actually help support muscle growth, for instance. So if you're a bodybuilder and trying to put on muscle, you actually probably will benefit from having some carbs in your diet. Um, if you're strictly ketogenic, low carb, it's possible to grow muscle, but you're probably not going to grow nearly as much muscle as you would if you were adding some healthy carbs. Right. And more protein as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So where, okay. So ketogenic diet as an intervention for treating some of these mental illnesses, what are some other, uh, avenues that someone might explore to help with improving mitochondrial efficiency in the body? So, you know, the, the good news 
is the re- one of the reasons that this theory makes so much sense is, is because it supports common sense interventions that all of us kind of already know make sense and work for at least some people. So sleep regulation. Sleep is extraordinarily important to metabolism, mental health, mitochondrial health. So if you're getting poor sleep, we need to talk about that and work on that. Um, hormonal regulation. If people have you know, abnormally low levels of hormones, thyroid hormone, estrogen, others, we might want to be thinking about hormone replacement therapy of those different hormones. Um, uh, we may want to be thinking about light exposure. So light exposure is related to sleep, but kind of different than sleep. So Light exposure, you want very little at night and right before you're going to bed because you want your body to be prepared to sleep and get the, the, the deepest, most restorative sleep possible. But then in the morning, in particular in the morning, you want to get some kind of bright light exposure. So that could be going outside and at least just letting your face be in sunlight. Um, It doesn't mean looking at the sun because you don't want to ruin your eyesight. uh, And looking at the sun is not a good idea. But not directly. Like, don't. Yeah. Anyone that's listening, do not go out tomorrow morning and look directly at the sun. (laughs) Do not do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but 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 having the sun sh- having the sunlight on your face and yeah. then look looking at the trees and the grass or whatever wherever you're walking could be really powerful. Um, sometimes uh, if you don't live in an environment where that's easy, like I live in the Northeast, for instance, and in the wind in the dead of winter, I'm not going outside <laughs> in a blizzard or in the freezing cold to get some sunlight. So some people use a light, bright light uh, therapy uh, in order to get a similar effect. Um, uh, temperature regulation. I know you've mentioned that a couple of times. Heat exposure, cold exposure can improve metabolic function and mitochondrial resiliency. Um, stress reduction. So one of the things that I love about this theory is that it integrates the biopsychosocial. And we know that trauma, stress, neglect, not feeling like you don't have any purpose in your life, all of those things, it turns out, impair metabolism and directly impair mitochondrial function and health. And the solution to that is not well, can't you give me a pill that will increase my mitochondrial function? Um, you know, people are working on pills that will do that. But I think the better solution is to solve those problems, to make sure you're not in an abusive relationship, to make sure you're not feeling neglected, to make sure that you have adequate relationships, friends, family, others in your life. And if you are feeling lonely and disconnected often, like, I really want you to just pay attention to that in yourself and recognize it's not a judgment one way or another. Like, everybody needs different levels of connection and social situations. So some people actually do really well with very few friends or social connections. They're, they they kind of like to stick to themselves. They might say they're introverted or shy and they actually don't feel lonely in those circumstances. They feel fine. They, 
and that's fine for them. Their health is probably actually pretty fine on that metric. Um, but if you're somebody who really needs to talk to people and connect with people and, you know, listen and also be heard, have people listen to you. Um, it's important to just honor that and respect that. And if you're not getting enough of it, you're going to know because you're going to feel lonely and empty. And when people feel lonely and empty, they get stressed. And so if you find yourself having a cocktail or two to deal with that stress, or you find yourself eating junk food and watching TV because you're feeling lonely or you're feeling sorry for yourself, those are maladaptive coping strategies. The much better coping strategy is, okay, I'm going to come up with a plan. I need more friends in my life. I need more social connection. And let's come up with a plan. And, you know, there are so many plans people can come up with. The first obvious one is hit up all your friends and family that you already have pick up the phone, text them, call them, email them, whatever you need to do. And, and just put yourself out there. Let's get together. Let's go. Let's, you know, come over. Let's watch a movie together. Uh, let's go out to dinner or whatever. Um, uh, substance use, you know, alcohol and um, marijuana in particular um, have horrible effects on mitochondria and mitochondrial function. And I'm sorry to rain on everyone's parade. I really am. <laughs> it's, um, I know people, I'm going to get all sorts of hate mail now. <laughs> <laughs> How could you take away our CBD? Or is it the THC or is it the CBD? What, what, is the, what is the thing that's impacting the mitochondrial function? We know with certainty THC does. The studies with CBD are less clear. And one of the confusing parts with, so both of those substances, one of the confusing parts is that a lot of people who have mental symptoms, mental, you know, anxiety, depression, whatever, um, they have these hyperexcitable brain cells. And so they're causing symptoms that are distressing to them. And both alcohol and marijuana can actually decrease those symptoms. Um, they, they suppress those cells from functioning. They basically kind of are turning those cells off. And so a lot of people, when they use alcohol or marijuana, their initial impression is this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. Cause you're taking overactivity and you're balancing it with something that will decrease the firing rate, let's say of those neurons. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. And that that decreases their symptoms. And so these, so those people can become hooked on these, on using these substances and they can rightfully and understandably. So kind of feel like, well, this must be good for my brain because it's helping my brain function normally. And what I want to say to you is that the science actually paints a different picture. The science helps us understand why those substances will decrease your symptoms in the short run. But the science also tells us that those substances are impairing your metabolism and your mitochondrial function over the long run. And that that might actually lead to more anxiety, more depression, more symptoms in the future. And in fact, the clinical- As a rebound, as a rebound or what is the mechanism there? It's both. So the, the rebound can be horrible and vicious for people, 
But even somebody who uses marijuana every day, if they're using it to treat an anxiety disorder, for instance, the evidence suggests that their anxiety over time will get worse. And, um, you know, some people will interpret that as I'm getting tolerant to the marijuana. I actually say, if you really understand the detailed science, you are harming your metabolism because you're harming the mitochondria in your cells. And that is why you, the marijuana is not working anymore. And so what, what do people do? They use more. They, they're, now they're smoking stronger stuff or they're using it throughout the day or they're using more of it. And then when that stops working, then they add some alcohol to it. And then they, they go to their doctor and they get put on pills and more pills and more pills. And as a rule of thumb, that is not a path to healing and health, unfortunately. And if it was, I wouldn't be here to naysay it, but I see patients day in and day out for over 27 years now. It is not a path to healing and health, I can tell you. Um, and uh, so I really am on a mission to try to empower people to take control of their brain health so that they can, and their body health too. But I'm being a psychiatrist, I'm, I think the brain rules. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I want to empower people to take control. And I think that there's a lot of things that you mentioned there that are sort of low barriers to entry. Like we can all work on sleep. We can all say, you know, and I know that there's some variation again, bioindividuality in terms of what's going to be optimal for people somewhere between six and nine hours for most people. I think six is a bit, I think that's a bit low, but uh, we know, I mean, one of the things we know obviously about sleep is that when you are sleep deprived, not only are you going to have, again, back to this metabolic uh, conversation, you're going to have inferior fuel partitioning. So you're going to move from that oxfos to like more glycolysis, let's say. Um, but then in terms of the brain, we also know that there, like some of the support systems, uh, you know, so everyone thinks, oh, there's like neurons in the brain. And of course there are, but we also have these astrocytes and we have all of these sort of immune cells let's say that support and you know prune and like take care of the neurons those can actually become on a sleep in a sleep deprived person and you can probably comment on this as well we see hyper excitability in some of these immune cells such that they're actually over pruning uh healthy like they'll kind of get rid of you know senescent or maybe dead cells or whatever but then when you are not getting enough sleep on a regular basis we also see that there's an increased pruning of even just like super fine, totally normal neurons as well, which of course, over the long term, you're going to see a decrease in total brain volume, which is like never, like that's never a goal. Like that's never something you want to aspire to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, we, we, so much research documenting that sleep deprivation over the long run uh, is horrible for brain health. We know that it makes every mental disorder worse. Take your pick. Schizophrenia, eating disorders, alcoholism, depression, OCD. Take your pick. Every mental disorder gets worse with sleep deprivation. Yeah. We also know that sleep deprivation makes every metabolic disorder worse. Um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. If you're diabetic and you get are sleep deprived, your blood sugars are going to go up. But also even obesity, 
Even if it doesn't change your eating, even if you keep eating the exact same way, sleep deprivation increases cortisol, which increases insulin resistance, which makes it more likely that you are going, your metabolism goes even lower. And that means you could be eating the exact same way, the exact same number of calories, but you're gaining more weight. Um, for no good reason. And that the reason is because your metabolism is plummeting even more. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's so many other areas that we could kind of dive into and you're such a wealth of knowledge. And I like the nerd in me, you know, <laughs> honors and sees the nerd in you. You clearly know your stuff. I think this is going to be such a valuable uh, conversation, particularly for my audience. A lot of them, as I mentioned, are women in perimenopause, seeing changes in uh, let's say insulin and sex hormone uh, production, thyroid potentially as well. And you've really given some great actionable items like ketogenic diet, you know, getting sunlight in the morning. I mean, we didn't talk about the super chiasmatic nucleus and all of that, but you know, one of the coolest things about one of the coolest things about that, you know, just in my learning about it is that we have these like receptors almost like at the bottom of the eye. So when you have like sunlight coming in, you know, you're activating these retinal ganglionic cells that are going to kind of go up to the brain and then like, Hey, it's, it's daytime cortisol high, you know, and then all, all the sort of different circadian, um, uh, implications from that. And anybody can get some, I mean, save for, you know, maybe if you're in Alaska or Sweden and Finland, certain times of the year where I know that they're, you know, the Northern lights and they don't get a lot of, there's like 24 hours of darkness, but for the rest of the year, um, most of those people can get, uh, sunlight as well. And I think that you've given, uh, your book and, you know, our conversation today, I mean, at least I feel very inspired and hopeful that the women that are listening who may be dealing with uh, fear and like generalized anxiety disorder or major depression or any of the other uh, conditions that we talked about, at least there's, there's hope that we can actually steer the boat in the way that we want um, through some of these interventions. So I just want to thank you for your time and your contribution to this conversation. It's been wonderful. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and thanks for a wonderful conversation. It's nice to meet a fellow nerd. Yes. <laughs> we'll do it again for your next book. <laughs> thanks so much. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.